Hey guys, quick heads up before we start this interview with Dave Morgan from Simul Media. There is a bonus interview at the end of this. Talk to Jim Rutenberg from the New York Times about two stories he wrote in the last week. They're good. You should listen to that. That's around the 53-minute mark if you're anxious, but you should listen to the whole thing. Enjoy. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing them right now. That's why I feel and look so comfortable. What do you think, Dave? You certainly feel and look comfortable. Check out these socks. Do these look comfortable? They do. Yes, that's, I like those. That's a I real like salesman telling you that he likes those socks. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like these socks, impossible to imagine. But if you don't like them, guess what you do, Dave? You send them back and you get your money guaranteed? No, no. That's old school thinking. You hang on to them. They send you your money back. Love it. They're still in business. So I can give it to my daughters then. Do, do whatever you want with them. Just go to MacWeldon.com. MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. You get 20% off, and they will know that I sent you. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm sitting across from Dave Morgan. I'm going to introduce him in one second formally, but first I just want to say that last week I went to the Code Commerce event. We hosted. I met a bunch of you guys. A bunch of you came up to me and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. I like your podcast. I love your podcast. It's great to hear that. I'm really appreciative of it. I'm glad that you guys like what I'm making. So thank you. And all I ask is that you tell someone else who's not me about the podcast so they can like it too. Okay, here is my formal introduction. It's Dave Morgan, CEO of Simul Media. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Simul, correct. Simul Media. I think of Dave as the guy I go to when I want someone to explain how advertising really works, both in TV and digital. Dave, you can actually explain what your business does in a second, but this is your third startup. That's right. Um, you've been doing some kind of media-related advertising startup for decades? Decades, since uh, 95, but I started working on them in 92. Okay, well, we'll go through the entire history later. But the company that you're building now, which you've been at for seven Eight years? and a half years. Eight and a half years. Uh, Simon Media, um, the, eventually what you want to do is allow – TV advertising be bought and sold the way that digital advertising is, right? That's right. You want to be able to find a person who looks like Peter Kafka, maybe is Peter Kafka, and say, hey, Peter Kafka, here's an ad tailored for you and your buying needs and buying habits, right? That is the holy grail of what you're trying to do and a lot of other folks have been trying to do for, again, decades. Yeah, that's the essence. The essence is fixing TV advertising and making it operate like digital. So you've been doing this for eight and a half years, and like I mentioned, people have been trying to do this for a long time. Um, this is basically the same, same question I come to you all the time. This is like – basically this is a version of me doing a reporting call with you. We're just recording. Right. How far away are we from getting to this really? How many more years before I get an ad delivered to me when I'm watching Monday Night Football that is delivered specifically to me as opposed to someone in the next house? Well, first it depends where you live and it depends what device you're watching it on. But I think you're going to see – it's slowly gotten better for the last five or eight years. And I would say in five years from now, eight years from now, 70 or 80% of the ads that you get on what we'll call TV, which may be a little bit different. Could be a phone, could be a tablet, but could be a traditional TV set, right? Could be a traditional TV set, may not come from a traditional cable or satellite, will be mostly tailored to you. And this, again, is the holy grail or has been a holy grail for traditional TV for a long time because why? Is the why, why hasn't it happened or why has it been the holy grail? Why is this, and just pretend I'm even dumber than I am. I'm pretty dumb. Why is this a good thing for advertisers to start with? I think that the fact that everybody in America gets the same ads at the same time for the same products 
has never made that much sense. I grew up in a small coal town in western Pennsylvania. My mother's still there. There's not a Starbucks within – there's one Starbucks 55 miles away, but probably not another one for 80 miles. Um, I live in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. There's more people on my block than in my hometown. And she gets the same ads, same time, same products. Can't even buy the same things. So it's never been very efficient for people. It made sense when you only had a few channels and you only had a few products. There's three kinds of peanut butter. Yep. Jif, Skippy, Peter Pan, which, is your, which one are you going to buy? But in a, today when there's thousands of products for a lot of different people sold a lot of different ways – Television needs to be made a lot more efficient to work for all of the advertisers. So they show you in your fancy pants apartment on the Upper West Side a Land Rover ad and you show someone in Coal Town something else. A Ford F-150. A Ford F-150. There is an argument that says, hey, you know what? We've gone really far with targeting on the web and it turns out we've gotten too fine and too specific. And sometimes there's just nothing like carpet bombing most of America with an ad for McDonald's and certain kind of brands like that. And, you know, maybe it'd be great to tailor it a little bit, but we'd rather just, like, make sure everyone sees the same ad because at least we know we're getting our bang for the buck as opposed to it sort of floating off in an ether and micro-targeting. Yeah, that's – you know, the concept of targeted reach, getting more efficient but still reaching a lot of people used to be an oxymoron. But it's not today. I mean, you can't actually just do an efficient carpet bomb anymore. If you're a movie studio today and you're going to put $80 million to work in two and a half weeks, which they do, on TV, in the old days you could right, – You've got a new Avengers movie. You've got $80 yeah. million bucks you're going to spend promoting it. On TV in two and a half weeks. <clears throat> you used to put it in just a few networks and you could make sure that no one person in two and a half weeks got that same ad more than five, eight times, ten times. That's OK. Today – 10 or 20 percent of the heaviest TV viewers will see that movie at 150 times. 40 percent of the people watching TV when that ad was being shown won't see it at all. And they're still frequent moviegoers. How are they seeing it 150 times? On TV or they're seeing on it TV. on billboards? And, no, just, just on TV. Just on TV because the television buyers still buy the same big shows right. the same way. And they buy them on sex age demographics. They don't have any deeper metric. They don't have a frequency cap. They don't have a notion of saying, don't show this ad too many times. And that inevitably leads to a situation that everybody complains about the same things. Too many ads that, that I see too many times that are not relevant on TV. And that's causing people to turn away from TV. That's one of the reasons streaming video is doing well because you don't have these – you know, this well, – the ad-free streaming video, right? The, the ad-free. of the world. Yeah. And even the Hulu services with limited ads. Right. Because ads have become a problem on TV. But what hasn't happened, right? You're describing this world where TV advertising is incredibly inefficient and clumsy and kind of bombarding the people who don't really know better, who don't know how to watch some other way or are choosing to watch TV instead of doing something else on the internet. What hasn't happened, though, is we haven't seen all that TV ad money move to the internet, which people have been waiting right. for for many years. And you seem skeptical that's going to happen as well. It's not going to happen. I mean, I started in online advertising. This is, this is the entire premise of Facebook and many yeah. other companies who are waiting for it's this not to happen, happen one day. Here's why it won't happen. So I did start in online advertising 25 years ago. So I don't think I'm a Luddite. But number one, TV advertising is not so broken it's had to be fixed. That's why it's taken so long. Even though you just described an incredibly broken process. Right. Because it still works better than the alternative? It works better than any alternative because 
I'll use an example. So you probably just an hour ago were watching Judge Judy. You just finished yeah, yeah, up yeah, yeah, today's yeah. show. Yeah, that's why I'm in a rush. I was exactly. a little late. So Judge Judy today in 30 minutes will deliver more people watching advertising time, so audience ad minutes, in 30 minutes than all of the videos all day on YouTube. Now, the YouTube guys are going to come out and say that's absolutely not true and they're going to uh, – It's totally empirically. They can't it, – it, they cannot – they can't argue with that. It is absolutely empirically – YouTube, if you add up all of the ad time – now, don't forget they have six-second pre-rolls. There's a lot right. of skippable ads. The amount of actual ad time. So actual ad stream. Ad stream time, right. which is what people pay for in the TV ad world, in the video ad world. But the counter to that is – Okay, but that's the Judge Judy audience. Those are the people who are watching Peter Kafka and everyone else who's watching it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We need to find many, many now generations of people who are not doing that. Well, let's, and they're, let's, and they're, they're let's, online. Let's step back from that a uh-huh. moment. Let's just decide who we are first. Uh-huh. So I'm Budweiser. Am I cool with that audience? The 2 o'clock Judge, Judge Judy, Judy audience? audience? No. She want, yeah, they want it. You, you, you want some of it, but that's not, that's well, want, not where you want it. A lot that, of that efficient. is not your target. Well, it may not be your perfect target, but it's a good chunk of them. You definitely want a bunch of 18 Ford, to 34-year-olds, right? State Farm, Walmart, McDonald's, these large meat reaching brands. In other words, Judge, there's a reason Judge Judy gets $43 million a year. Yes, she is very popular. And her show's growing. Yeah. Still growing. Still growing. Still growing. Okay. Yeah. So my point is, like, if you can chase, if you want to just chase the luxury young millennial audience, you're going to chase a group of people that aren't yet spending that much. Or if they are spending or spending on a limited number of products, it can be maybe more efficiently mm-hmm. gardening and targeting. But if you're really looking for large mass reach brands, nothing beats TV. Plus, look, you have a premium show here. Vox is premium. Yes. House of Brands. Okay. Absolutely. Tim so, line, so when you sell when you sell premium video advertising, pre-roll a six second, eight second. It's going to go out at about a fifty dollars CPM. Yeah, I'll nod. Yeah, he'll nod. TV national cable goes at eight. Thirty second ad, interruptive, all attention on it. TV's really cheap. It's cheap because they've kept the pricing somewhat artificially low to keep volume up. So we've explained how far away we are. You yep. said five to eight years from this to really work. We've explained why you would want to move the, to make ads more efficient. We've explained why the TV money is not going to, in the meantime, all flood over onto Facebook yep. or YouTube. Um, what is holding it back? Because again, you've been working at this for eight and a half years. I've gotten to the point where I only sort of cover this every couple of years because every couple of years someone says, addressable TV is happening tomorrow and here is someone to tell you why. And sometimes they spend billions of dollars on this. There was a, uh, was it called Canoe? Yep. The cable yep. guys got together, just incinerated billions of dollars trying to make it happen. What is preventing it from happening today at scale? In the end, you have an you have a oligopoly, a highly competitive oligopoly of about eight companies that own content, six companies that drive distribution. The Time Warners of the world, the Comcast yep. of the world. And five companies that do most of the buying. And one company that the does WPPs. the measurements. And then Nielsen, right? That's, right. That's, the, that's the consortium. Right. You can actually put them all in this room and still have plenty of room and even some snacks left over. Spacious room. Yes. So they didn't have a reason to change. That's now changed. They now see an end that happens before they can retire. Wall Street has said you must go into harvest mode. We see a terminal value of zero coming. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's not going to be pretty. So now you're seeing consolidation. So we've got AT&T buying Time Warner. 
You've got Discovery buying scripts. You have Time Warner Cable or Charter bought Time Warner Cable. You've got Altice bought Cablevision. Um, they're going to buy probably more. Verizon's buying everything. Verizon's buying everything. Um, Disney, we you know Disney's taking a position that they, they're buying. You know they, they bought a control position of BAM. So everybody's now it's getting to musical chairs time, and you also have a whole aging out of a generation that believed in TV, loved TV, only knew TV. So the new chief marketing officers are now, they're not digital natives, but they're digital immigrants. Right. They don't get their, they weren't getting their email printed out 10 years ago. Right. So now we got the rationale for why it's going to happen, but what has been holding it back? What is, is there a technical problem that's, that we need to solve? Well, there's some technical just infrastructure. Needs to have, to, have to want to do it. Yeah. There's some people have to want to do it, but there's a couple things that will keep it from going the way people think. Um, how many American households don't have broadband at home? That's me shrugging my shoulders. Well, it's 100 million people. So when you think about that, when can McDonald's afford to really go all online? They can't afford to miss 100 million Americans. Right. You basically have half the country has cable slash broadband. Yeah, 30%, 30% of people don't even have the internet at home at all. Not, and when broadband is half, not having the internet is a third. Not to be all East Coast elitist. We're sitting in the old Goldman Sachs building. Right kind of want to shrug, right? I mean, at some point, no. you stop chasing those folks, right? How can you? Not if you're State Farm, McDonald's, Walmart, right. Some of those Ford. advertisers, but a lot of them don't. No. So I'm talking about 65 of the <clears throat> $75 billion on TV. Okay. They're those people. All right. And they do buy a lot. And, and you know, so, I mean, no, I come from one of those places. So I have a little, mm-hmm. you know, I get to talk to my mother every other day or so, like, you know, get a little bit. There's a bunch of things that we digital people didn't always understand. And I would say Wall Street gets it. So that's where the capital is going. The telcos are consolidating. The media companies are consolidating. So they now know we need to make it happen. And the competition for growth has to come from something more, more effective than yesterday's TV advertising. Dave, I have more questions for you about this, but I'm going to take a quick break. Okay. some water, too. Sorry about my cold, everybody. Um, We'll be right back with Dave Morgan from Simon Media. Recode Media is brought to you by The Art of Shaving, because they know the secret of a well-groomed guy. They're founded in New York in 1996, which means they've been helping guys look their best for more than 20 years. Art of Shaving has your total routine covered. That's shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Why would you want to put anything else on your body? The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service. That's a fancy way of saying they will bring the stuff to you. They will deliver it to you so you can save on your favorite products and you never have to worry about running out. My listeners will get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA. It's good stuff. You'll like it. To get this offer, go to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code MEDIA. That gets you 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for the special offer. Or if you're the kind of person who likes to go to a real store in real life, go check out one of their stores. They will give you an awesome shave in person. That is a fun experience. Everyone should try it at least once. Thank you, Art of Shaving. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm newly hydrated. I'm back here with Dave Morgan from Simon Media. You know this because you're listening to the same podcast, but we keep following this convention of doing this sort of radio-style ad break. Anyway, hello, Dave. Welcome back. I want to keep asking you about TV and digital and, and this great merger of targeted advertising. When you hear AT&T and Time Warner and when you hear Verizon slash AOL, we had Tim Armstrong here a couple weeks ago, 
say, to justify um, why they're merging, they will often talk about addressable advertising is sort of one of the things they're very interested in. Do you take them at face value? Do you think that's something they're really going to pursue and they really think that is the reason to do the merger? Or is that an additional thing to say? Or in re- something you say because you don't want to explain why you're really doing that deal? I think there's certain economies to scale to bringing companies together. But I think that without question, I take them at face value that a key driver, maybe the primary driver of long-term values addressable advertising, I think that for 20, 30 years, as we've been thinking about when will TV advertising change, there's actually been a, a strong movement for when will direct marketing kind of results come out of advertising? When can a marketer put a dollar out and know the result they'll get back? If they buy coupons, if they bought freestanding inserts in newspapers, they could get that. Right. Google. Right. Google, they get that. Facebook, Facebook they get that. Digital has made it front and center table stakes. That's one of the biggest reasons why we're going to see addressable, performance-focused TV advertising going forward because digital's now made it table stakes. You say performance style advertising, right? So on um, what you don't often see on on Facebook, right, is a Ford F-150 ad. Right. Right. You see an ad for something that you can click on and buy within one or two clicks. Facebook's aspiration is to get that Ford F-150 ad. You've already explained why they're not going to get it. When we get to addressable TV advertising and it's a real thing, is there going to be a Ford F-150 ad or is it going to be here's an ad – Respond now, and you're going to get a free. You're going to, you get your Doritos delivered immediately to your door, or sign up for the shaving kit. Well, I think actually to the consumer, if it's done well, they won't know. Like if you look at some of these the digital brands that have really grown recently in the last few years as consumer brands, well, that's the last ten years, Expedia, Priceline, they're heavy users of search. They grew their businesses in TV, so it's sort of like TV pitches. Search, social, online uh, interface catches. Zillow. There's a lot of companies that have been more consumer-focused that are doing it that way. And so You say you, you're, you put on a branding ad on TV, which is not interactive, and, you've, and you connect it with something interactive on TV. Uh, Zillow, I remember what to use them for. I'm going to click on this right. thing. On, and on, and on, it actually assumes that that's how people buy, which, of course, they don't. Like we're not actually processing and understanding, oh, I heard this ad. This is what I'm going to do. This is why I'm going to grab this can of – this jar of peanut butter, not that jar. What you do know is when you start linking what people view and what they buy, there's an extraordinary impact. And that's really where – that's really where the change is happening. And this is what's behind – certainly as I understand it in listening to the transcript of Randall uh, Stevenson from um, AT&T, which is they have more data than anybody on people what they're going to purchase and linkages to what they buy. And so you're now going to connect. The Ford F-150 may be tough because it may take months or years to change someone's decision, but not for Walmart, not for going to a movie, not for Hellman's mayonnaise. Right. And Amazon is sort of talking about this. As they edge into TV, they're going to start showing NFL games. They will say, you saw an ad for something watching our stream, and then eventually you ended up on Amazon. We can link those things. Right. So – If you look at the market cap of Google, the market cap of Facebook, like those two particularly, they're built on continued growth at the same rate for a decade probably. Now, there's only so much they can churn through what was print advertising. They can churn through what was radio advertising. They're going to have to churn through what was or is TV advertising. They either – 
capture the TV audiences onto their own platforms. We've seen Amazon's attempt here. Right. It's pretty successful. Give it away for free, bring the TV audiences, develop relationships around shipping and then sell them e-commerce. Facebook's already announced they're going to start buying. YouTube already is buying. They want to take the audiences away from TV, put them on their platforms and monetize them in a digital platform. You've heard my reasons why I don't think that'll happen right. soon. The other alternative is the AT&T Verizon alternative, which is I'm going to bring a digital monetization approach to TV. I'm going to go there because it's really simple. There's no way that Google and Facebook grow into their market caps if they don't take away the TV dollars. Everybody talks about the $75 billion in the U.S., right. $250 billion worldwide. They have to get it. So they're either going to embrace technology and put it on linear TV, which may last longer than people think, or they're going to have to wrench those audiences away from TV. Yeah, my gut is that I don't think AT&T is very serious about addressable. I think they're a slow-growth company who bought another slow-growth company because that seemed like a good way to spend their money. But we'll see. That's the fun about writing it. I'm happy to be wrong. I want to talk to you about, you about building your business. Like I said, this is your mm -hmm. third business. We'll talk about some of your other businesses. But I've been talking to you about this one for seven, eight and a half years. And it seems to me that you've either pivoted or bobbed and weaved through a couple different iterations. When you started out, it seemed pretty clear you were going to – your goal was to do addressable TV advertising. But you weren't doing that initially. You were doing this thing. It was a little complicated. But basically, you were finding a smarter way of buying existing TV advertising. How much of the evolution of your company has been intentional versus, oh, we thought we'd go here, but it turns out that didn't work. We've got to go a different direction. Well, if I pulled out the original business plan and showed it to you, you would be shocked at how consistent it is with where we are today. So today it's where you said you were going to be. Yeah. But, but then you went through multiple Then the steps. hardest thing is a market entry strategy. <clears throat> and the biggest problems in starting, starting companies and doing startups um, – you either grow too fast or you grow too slow. Like finding a perfect equilibrium what's is very the, what's difficult. What's the growing too fast problem? Well, you grow too fast, you build a big cost structure before you have a revenue basis. And then the moment there's not like – Then you run out of money. Plentiful capital. Yes, yeah. you run out of money. Because look, venture-backed startups only have three outcomes. You go public, trade sale, or you go out of business. And timing is probably the most important thing. So my first startup, we filed to go public, filed our S1 to go public in the end of 99. This is real media. Real media. We were ready to go on the road in late February. We're already like planning the road show with the bankers. Frank Quatrone's our banker, Credit Suisse. You're already picking what cities you're going to go. Are you going to go private, fly commercial? That's the kind of stuff they're asking you because you're a heady entrepreneur and you're all excited about that. And then you wake up one day and the stock market collapses. Then your bankers tell you, we're going to hold off a while. And then a month or two goes by. Then they're like, we're really going to hold off. And then you're like, I'm spending like $6 million a month running the company against $4 million, $5 million of net revenue. This isn't sustainable. In other words, burn rates start, yeah. start becoming you're like, You realize you're, like, you're burning a million, $2 yeah. million a month at this point because you were getting ready to be a big public company with $150 million of extra cash. Then This was a web-based advertising company. Web-based advertising yeah. company. Then – over the period of five months, you have to lay off 375 people to get it down to a profitable ad-serving business in the nuclear winter of the post-dot-com you know, dot -com world and then merge it, finding the way to the other side. And so you know, I think if I look at 
simul media, having sort of been through the ups and downs and roller coasters of startups. The hard thing is, like, I think actually seeing the big long-term promise isn't that hard. When people say, like, how can you, how can you make bets early? It's like, well, everybody knew that TV advertising would become addressable at some point. I mean, people wrote about that in the 1980s. Right, but if you built an addressable TV company in the 1980s, you're out of business. In the 90s, you're out of business. Right. I did it in the 90s too. I did it in Europe. I had 60 people doing addressable ads in France, in France, the UK, and Switzerland. So we sort of helped to get to know it. But you got to find that moment. So when I launched the business, Google TV ads, Google had a business. Microsoft bought a business called Admira doing targeted TV ads. Looked like it was going to happen then. Phase one of like our discussions is happening now. Boom, it blows up. Then a canoe is launched. Well, this is the next wave. Right. That blows up. Um, so now we've got sort of this next phase, which is there's consolidation in the space. The digital players are heavy into video. They're getting real audiences. They're going to beat Judge Judy's. And right. But I want to go back to the you, – you've moved around a few times in this business. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember – I've told you this before, but for the benefit of you guys. I remember going to dinner with some ad guys and you had started your business and they said – the TV guys are going to crush Dave Morgan. He's really smart, but there's no way they're going to let him into their business. He wants to get into the business of, of selling TV ads, and they're never going to give that up. He's going to find that he's going to get smacked down. And it seemed like a couple of different times you said, oh, yeah, it was harder to get into this market than I realized. And I'm just trying to get a sense of, of how many times you sort of consciously said, oh, we're going to have to turn left or turn yeah. right. So here. the first thing we did, because the resistance was out of the TV industry. They did not want us in. Right. Because you so, said, I'm going to make your business more efficient and make you more money. And they said, we're fine the way we yeah. are. So not, it's not so broke. It has to be fixed. Yeah. So our phase one was going to TV networks as advertisers and said, you guys really want your advertising more measurable and more performant, right? So CBS as an advertiser because they have to launch shows and if they don't make ratings, right. they lose their jobs. And they believe in TV. Right. And the number one really job of a broadcast TV network is to advertise its own shows. Right. It's a big part of a lot of the programming. They buy a lot what they do. So we – our market entry was to go to them as advertisers and win them over. And so today we work with nine of the top ten TV companies in America and launching TV shows when they advertise them on other networks. Right. And again, you weren't really doing addressable TV. You were just saying we no. found inefficiencies in the way TV is bought and sold. We're going to find you cheap inventory on Friday morning that's going to advertise your Monday primetime show. You're going to make money. And it will do better. And our software is actually going to determine did the person see the ad and then did they watch the show. And we're going to give you a conversion measurement just like you get on search. They loved it. Closed loop advertising on TV, and that was you went with that, even though your goal was eventually addressable TV. So right. we're going to start yeah. here because why? Well, because a it was a way that the TV companies would play. We gain admission into the Velvet Rope Club. They let me in the rooms. Yeah. Um, B, it was possible then. C, we could build technology and data that could make us smarter, and we would have a prototype model for what you would do in the future to advertise for Walmart. Even realizing that really doing addressable was still many years off, but we believed that it would be audience-based, data-driven, and and measured on a performance basis. Like those were the fundamental characteristics. So started in the television program promotion, then started expanding into general market, helping retail companies. I thought, hey, if you come in and you guarantee them results, they'll all come running. They did. 
some of them we started saying, we're going to – we started selling ratings to TV networks. They like that. Take away the risk. We started doing the same for retail and insurance. Then we started getting a lot of resistance from agencies and others because we became pretty threatening in the market. And when an ad agency resists you and they say, we don't even take the call, right? The logical thought would be, well, we're just going to go right to the P&Gs of the world. We're going to go right to McDonald's. And, 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 but no one really does that, right? That no, so in, in the digital world, direct client selling with the agency supporting it is the number one way of doing business. And the reason was in the digital days, the digital agency was new too. We were right. both fighting for the same thing. Change it, shift your budget, take money away from TV, put it into digital. Now I'm on the other side of the house. So there it's more of a resistance to change. And so there's a there's a setup world where big advertiser X goes through ad agency Y, and that is the relationship. And sure you'd like to insert yourself in the middle of that, but they're not gonna let you in. Neither no. one of them wants to let you in. No. And it had not been done. And and so one of the ways it works in digital is that the website was owned at the client, not by the agency. And so there was always digital people at the client, at the marketer. So that was probably the longest poll, the hardest thing we've had to do was over the last half a dozen years, five years plus, that we've been working with general advertisers, general market advertisers, is going to the client directly, showing them how their TV is working, how they could do better. Ultimately, in an ideal world, aligning with the agency. So now the agency realizes, like them or not, I'm going to work with them because I want the agency in place. They actually do a lot of good stuff. You're, you're at this eight and a half years, like you said. You're venture-backed, mm -hmm. right? So at some point, those folks want their money back. Is this longer than you anticipated or are you, are you on the timetable you thought you'd be on? Longer. Yeah. Yeah. If I go back and look at all of our projections, I would have thought this market maturity level – was going to occur four years ago. So you're four years behind. In four some years, ways. yeah. The market's four years behind. So this is the big issue, right? As a startup, if I built my business such that all of the money, all of the infrastructure, all the technology, all the people were in place four years ago, when I thought it would be there, do a moonshot. You don't achieve escape velocity. You crash to earth. That's how the canoes of the world and things mm -hmm. like that didn't make it. You go, it's right around the corner. Let's go big. Yeah. So for, I had a couple and things. And then it turns out to not be around the corner. Right. It's a wall around the corner. You're dead. Yeah. So I had a couple good th things going for me. One, I own a significant part of the company. I was fortunate my last startup exited pretty well. And so I had more of a voice and a seat at the table among the investment group than I might have otherwise had, than most entrepreneurs would have. Let's just be super clear about this because I was going to get to this. And this is always one of my favorite questions to talk to entrepreneurs about and they usually don't want to do it on, on the record, so I'm glad we're doing it here. You made a bunch of money selling your second startup, Dakota, yep. right? So you, you are a wealthy person. It means when you do startup three, you need to raise less money. You can go to your investors and say, I'm going to keep more of my company, and both because you're now well off and two, because you have a track record, you can do that. Right. So you are different than a lot of other startups. Right. You, The track record's everything. Now the challenge is that the third-time recidivist entrepreneur doesn't have good – their track records aren't so good. Like you have a lot of people that once they get – they have more money, they get sloppy. They don't like flying coach. They right. want to go I've, home. I've, I've, I've done the grimy part of building the business. I want to build another one, but I don't want it to be quite so rough. I don't want to be ramen, right. ramen profitable. And so actually I was fortunate. Brad Burnham, who I've known since 95, I was – 
their the, – I was the first investment in Union, Union Square, Square Ventures. Ventures yeah. And he's on my board with me today. When I said I was going to do it, he said, you know, the track record for third times aren't good. They're not hungry. You got to be hungry. And so – You're in your 40s at the time when you start this? Yeah. So yeah. you're too I'm old fi- to be starting a startup. Yeah. I'm 54 now. Yeah. So, so he's like, you got to really be certain you're going to do it. And you get – you know, boards want you. I was on a public board at that time. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, wow, yeah, he's right. I got to get focused. I got to do it. I got to talk to my wife and my kids. Like, you know, I'm going into the trenches and I don't know when I'm going to come out. So you have to do it. But then you have the advantage. Yeah, I could have other investors bidding for a position in the company. So, so you've got more leverage when you're forming the company in terms right. of the people who are going to fund you, the terms you're going to set. And obviously, we're to, we've been through a period in the last few years where entrepreneurs of all stripes, right, fresh out of school or not mm-hmm. even out of school, are able to make some of these deals as well. But at the time, it was kind of rare to get this. You're able to say, these are the terms. I'm going to own this much of the company, and you guys are going to be along for the ride to some degree. Yeah. And you can do that, again, because of your status, wealth and status. How does that change decisions you would make otherwise? Like if you if this was startup one or startup two, would you have sold it already? Would you have founded an exit? Oh, yeah. I mean, because – I mean – very directly, we had offers for this company, an interest in this company that would have paid, that would have paid off and made it a good return years ago. There were a lot of people would have made that, you money personally. Would have made your investors money. Yes, wouldn't have been a ten x. Wouldn't have been a home run. Right. But if you were a normal person, it would have been. You a would re- take it. Would have been real money. Yes. Life changing money, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. But we could afford to be mission driven, so we could say we want to solve this problem, which helps me on the recruiting side because I can bring in people that have choices from a lot of other startups, and they want to be in a place like that. Are some of them doing the math and saying, wait a minute, Dave's not going to sell. Meanwhile, I haven't had my hit yet. You know, I, I would like Dave to sell. You know, probably they don't tell me that so much uh-huh. if they do think that. I think if we were in the Valley, yes. I mean, there's a very different mindset between the Valley and the Alley, Silicon Alley. Um, I, think, I think people in New York tend to be a little more business committed People in the Valley are more, let's exploit this tech and get on to the next one quickly. It's more of, interestingly, more of a, a pure numbers game. Um, we don't have nearly the robustness and the fluidity of the 10 startups you can move in and out of easily. Right. If I'm gonna, I, I, There's a lot of folks in the Valley, I think, right now, just assume that if they leave their job at Google, Facebook, wherever, it's just a matter of where they want to go. It is. Now, I think it's interesting, though, if you look at that market now, there's been a massive concentration now between Google and Facebook with all of the talent. So what was half a dozen big companies and thousands of others is becoming a more consolidated ecosystem. But but it's much sparser in New York. There's a handful much of Much sparser in New York. But then you have a lot of traditional places they can right. work. So you always have to compete with that. So is there a gap, though, between you and your employees and you're, you're well off? You, you really want to see this through? This is important for you to make to do right versus someone saying, I know, but... I need to have some kind of exit myself or some kind of payout. Are you figuring out some way to compensate those folks to keep them there? Yeah. You're I mean, obviously paying them. We pay. I yeah. mean, there's three – people work for you for three reasons or work with your company for three reasons. One, always the first one, is the problems they get to solve. Like that's – Is the work interesting? It's it's the work interesting. Are they going to solve a big problem? I mean, for if you're a startup, it's not just doing interesting work. Am I solving a big problem? Then it's who are they going to work with? And then third is am I fairly compensated for it? Because I think most people in New York don't expect a massive life-changing 
exit. Now, I want to deliver that. I mean, I got lucky. I mean, in Dakota, I won't remember exactly, but certainly 10, 15 people out of a 100-person company had seven-figure exits. People in tech don't expect that, right? That's the reason you go to Wall Street is to make that kind right. of money, right? Yes. But if you're doing tech instead of Wall Street, you sort of were smart enough to figure out what those exits are. Yeah. So I always tell people coming in, like I tell them, I'll give them a lot of transparency about the value of the stock, what I think it'll be worth and what we're going to try to do. And I tell them, having delivered good exits in the past, I'm like, look, you should be just as, you're going to be just as proud of having built some technology that's still running. I mean, my people built the ad server that's still the second most deployed ad server in the world after DoubleClick. They wrote that code. That means a lot to engineers to have built a code base that's still running 20-some years later. So we talk about it. We have, we have stand-up meetings every uh, every Monday afternoon, and I talk to them about – Stand-up like, meeting is when you're literally standing up? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, so like I talk to them about here's what I tell the board. Every time we have a board meeting, I tell them here's what I told the board. Here's what the board said. Um, I talk to them about when – you know, here's the kind of decisions we're going to have to make. So I don't think there's a big divide because they're pretty good about telling me actually. So when they're listening to this, they're not rolling their eyes and saying, Dave, come on. You know, they're, we have a culture such that they're pretty good about letting me know even if yeah. they won't do it there. But there's – the thing I love about tech cultures, like the engineers are the first to tell you. They're like, come on. Like stop it. Like tell the truth. So occasionally, see, occasionally that directness for an engineer gets them in trouble. Yeah. But you have to have a culture that, yeah. that, that does that. I mean so you know, we – you know, I, so I think – I would say if I step back, I think – I think the interests are very aligned. The people that don't want the same path, I'm also very good about there's some people that not everyone's going to stay at your company the whole time. I mean I have some people that have been here from the beginning. We have people that have done five years and left three years. I have people that worked for me in my first company, not my second, are now working in Simulmedia as the third. I have people that have left the company and come back because the other thing is startups have phases. There's the off-road phase, the dirt road phase the paved road phase, the highway phase, the limited access highway phase, and the Audubon phase. Some people will come and join one phase. They'll make it to the next phase, maybe two phases, but they may not scale to the next. They may not like it. They want to go back to a dirt road business. Some will do two phases, go off and work someplace else, learn the next skill and do that. So I think if you look at it a bit more fluid, I mean, I love the fact that I mean, we, we celebrate people's anniversaries. Yesterday, I think we had Someone had a four-year anniversary. Someone else the day before had a five-year anniversary. You know, you get a few of those every week, so. I like your highway metaphor. We're going to take a quick off-ramp right now. Okay. We're going to hear from one more advertiser. We'll be right back with Dave Morgan. Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever need to send money internationally? Maybe you're an engineer, moved to the U.S. Maybe you're a business owner trying to pay suppliers in another country. You're a freelancer getting paid by someone in a foreign country. You should use TransferWise. When it comes to sending money, banks are stuck in the past. TransferWise is the future. Go to the future. It's better there. You pay into a local account, and TransferWise pays your recipient from an account in their country. Currencies don't need to cross borders. And that should matter to you because it lets TransferWise do things your bank can't. They charge one low fee. They give you a great low rate. And unlike your bank, TransferWise payments take seconds to set up. See how much you could save by going to TransferWise.com. You can download the app from Apple Store or Google Play. Once again, that's TransferWise.com. Transfer like I got to transfer money from one country to another country. And wise like I'm a wise person who listens to Recode Media. 
It's transferwise, W-I-S-E dot com. Hey, Dave. We're back here with Dave Morgan from Simon Media. I have a different voice again because I'm still sick. I like this culture stuff. I think it's fun to talk about culture. People don't really talk about it. Again, I think honestly when they're talking about uh, startups. You mentioned a couple times, speaking of culture, that, that you're from Coal Town. Pennsylvania? Western Pennsylvania, right? Western Pennsylvania. Clearfield, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. How do you get from there to New York to Silicon Alley startups? Was was the plan, I want to go build digital internet companies? Digital no. advertising companies? No. no. I didn't have a mercantile bone in my body. My dad was a lawyer. My mother was a nurse. Um, I loved science. I went to college at Penn State, which wasn't that far away. Um, started as an engineer, found out that Engineering was about math, not science. I was really good in math, but I wasn't going to spend all my time doing it. I went to law school because I thought that would be – That's what you do. I could do it. It was a good path. They were paying a lot of money. Um, I went to a big law firm in Philadelphia. Um, Got paid more money than my dad was getting paid, which I thought was ridiculous. He's taking cases to the U.S. Supreme Court in a little town, and they're paying me more to like handle GE litigation, Um, you know, making copies. Mm-hmm. Velo binding. I'm expert at velo binding. I'm extraordinary at velo binding. I don't even know what binding is. Yeah, it's, it's an old skill. It's, there's still a few of us out there. So, um, and then I I got lucky. I started like actually having opinions about my client's business. And I was one case. I got to work, I got to work a little bit with Paul Allen buying out some assets of a spin out of RCA when it was bought by GE. You were the second guy to reference Paul Allen in the last few weeks here. There we go. Tim Armstrong had an early yeah. Paul Allen story. Vulcan Ventures was a client. And I was a junior person on it, and they were going to back a PC clone licensing IBM technology. And I'm thinking, how can you build a computer business if you're licensing IBM? It's impossible. That became the Cardinal uh, Technologies business, which eventually was just a modem. And then I quit that, worked on, ran a political campaign, ran into uh, James Carville on that campaign, um, was on the losing side of that campaign. Um, Lifeguarded at the beach, wanted to write a great American novel, more than you're expecting here, and then went to work for the newspaper industry as a lawyer doing pre-publication review, libel review and ad acceptability standards. And this internet thing started going. And so I was brought in to help lobby against the telecommunications industry because On I behalf politics, of the newspaper guys. Newspaper the, the, the guys. Argue, what was their beef with the telecom guys? Oh, it's so funny. They thought they would buy content and have – cross-subsidization from rate-based telco to bring in subsidized content. You think like give away free HBO to get a mobile plan? (laughs) Or is it really going to go the other way actually? Um, And that that would be unfair competition to the newspapers and that they would lose their Yellow Pages businesses out of it. They they bring the Yellow Pages and beat up the newspapers. And so that's 91, 92, 93. Now all those businesses are gone. Yeah. Telcos are still They're happy. all fighting yesterday's fights. Yeah. And so um, the web hit. And, you know, newspaper companies were really heavy investors on an R&D basis in the early online services. Right. We, we now say, oh, the newspaper guys never saw the internet coming. They saw it oh, coming. They saw it totally. They couldn't figure out what to do with it. But they were, they were aware of it and they thought this would be an interesting thing for them to be doing. Yeah. And I'm going to say something that's blasphemous in this building, if you don't mind. So I don't tell Jim, but, like, maybe he'll hear it because he listens to you. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought content was king. And they were wrong. Their content was not king. Their distribution was king. Their distribution was king. They – every newspaper in America, every time there was a highly competed for market, two-newspaper city, the one with the best content lost. 
to the one with the best distribution. People like Revere Annenberg, like, I mean, built the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm-hmm. They won 18 Pulitzers in 10 years, something like that. They forget that 15, 18 years before that, he did a deal with little, little Nicky Scarfo in Philadelphia. They kneecapped the bulletin distributors. The bulletin was a better paper. And then Philadelphia Inquirer won distribution, probably felt a little guilty, hired um, Gene Roberts, and they won Pulitzers. And, but that was the way it was everywhere. Right. The value was, was literally the, the distribution of the stuff and also the bundle of the stuff. Right. So when they shifted to online models, they still had this idea if they dangled content, everyone would come running. And they forgot the bundling, the distribution. They didn't let the commercial, the commercial folks drive those business decisions. And those commercial folks ultimately left – and built the businesses at Yahoo and AltaVista and Excite. And you're one of those guys who left and yeah, built something. I left. And why did you build it in New York instead of going out west with everyone else? Because I ran into this guy named Brad Burnham in an elevator in Dallas in January of 1995. And I told him my idea for a business. And he said, well, the advertising businesses in New York City, you can't do it from Pennsylvania. So if you're really serious, you're going to quit your job and come to New York. So 95, you're building a, a digital advertising business in New York City. There's almost no one doing anything digital in New York City in 1995. There There's couple. barely anyone doing it in Silicon Valley. Yeah. But so if you're doing it in New York, you're one of a handful of people who so, are doing anything like this. Yeah. And the thing is, the re- people don't realize the hardest parts of doing it in New York were not – it wasn't resistance because the ad community was here and they would take meetings and there were a lot of media companies here and they would take meetings and – there weren't lawyers who not knew how to work with startups in New York. There weren't real estate people who knew how to work with startups. I mean, you're used to doing 10-year leases. You're used to doing – like the stuff that the Valley just kicked our butts on and even Boston kicked our butts on because they had had a much better venture community. Right. You, that, 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 it used to be that, that East Coast technology was in Boston, right? Yeah. There was a lot of uh, academic-based stuff. A lot of actual technology was coming out of Boston. Yeah. So – I mean, we had only a couple venture capitalists, Alan Patrickoff. Brad Burnham was AT&T Ventures at the time. Um, Fred Wilson and Jerry Colonna had probably not yet or just about started um, Flatiron. So a very small group. Um, DoubleClick didn't exist yet. It was actually mostly an Atlanta-based business tied to something called Poppy that took over poppy.com here in New York. Jason Kalkanis started his newsletter. Jason listens. Hello, Jason. Hey, Jason. Um, I'm thinking he'll, he'll have to correct me. He'll, he will correct me, I'm sure. But I'm thinking that was probably late 95, the first Silicon Alley um, yeah. reporter newsletter came out. And the big thing was getting on his map. Right. But it's a small map. So oh, it was a small map. There were like a dozen of us. Yeah. Like. So uh, you've mentioned a few times where you came from. You, you've called me out a couple times for being sort of an East Coast elitist about, about uh, what I think about – I think you appropriately called yourself out on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I'm from Minnesota, so I can I can I can do it with a nudge and a wink. But given that you have that background, and now we've spent the last year plus talking about the divide between the coasts in the middle of the country, and now we're talking about the gap between the technologists and the rest of the country. Do you feel like you've got a particularly useful perspective you can share with people about sort of what that gap actually is or is not? Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think. Um, and this also ties into more control of the company. When you're a small minority holder of a company and you're beholden to your investors who may be from very specific economic strata and they tell you they have a viewpoint, you can't really disagree too much. But if you believe you have a point of view that's different or that you can see something that people don't see, like for example, not many tech venture capitalists actually would believe in backing the future of television. Today they would. Not 
television, linear TV. They uh-huh. wouldn't have said that eight years ago. Right. Like it'll still be around. They'll just say no. It's all going to go to YouTube. Yes, yes. No, they were all. They've been predicting the death of TV for twenty years. Until you explained that, like, like I talked to my mother, and her broadband, like, still is like, you know, she's one of ten percent, fifteen percent of the people in town that have it. Like, they can't all get Netflix. And when I talk to people in the business. They're even shocked. If you're in TV, you're certain – I mean a lot of people in TV are probably the most pessimistic about the future of TV because they don't even realize. They are so used to hearing these other digital disruptions. And so I think that there's you – know, I think having a sense of balance. I mean like for example, this will sound crazy but I was telling people at the time. I mean I'm, I was very unhappy with the outcome of the election but I wasn't surprised because it was obvious on my Facebook. Like half the people who I grew up with who were smart people who were military officers were putting stuff on their Facebook. I just was shocked at. I would have been shocked at in New York. Is, is there a way to, to apply that to the business itself or it just gives you more expansive worldview? It applies it's sort to of the like business. it undergirds your thesis, right? The TV is big and out there yeah, and lots of people you that you're not paying attention to should be paid attention to. Yeah. I mean if I tell you 100 million Americans don't have the internet at home, I do this a lot of times like in conferences. Like right, how many you realize people? that I'm going to pause and go, really? Yeah, and you'll be shocked. And like So I, the best – you know, my time in New York teaches me to make a bet against – make a bet that way. Like – you know, this is sort of like you know, like the Undoing Project. You sort of go to where you know people are not going to play Moneyball. Like. If, if it's so obvious to you that having a slightly different background than a lot of folks who are running startups and creating startups and backing startups in the Valley is a good thing, why do you think more venture capitalists, right, who are ultimately sort of motivated by returns, aren't out there actively mining uh, smaller towns, right, in the middle of the country saying – Let's find this guy in Bismarck. I bet he's got a good idea. I think it's a it's a much tougher, it's a much higher risk bet, and it's a much my chances for failure were so much higher, um, and so it was it was much more likely I was going to fail. The most predictable way to make a bet if you're an investor is you're going to get someone with an engineering degree out of Stanford who has a perspective on a core technology that you can make a heavy investment in and it's either going to work in 18 to 24 months or not. And it's pattern matching, right? That's yeah. The, the term it's total pattern used. matching. This guy looks like the last guy that was successful. Yeah. And I'm not going to look like that. And so, you know, I happen to get to the city, but, you know, you know most people I grew up with, the vast majority have never been to New York City. Um, so, um, you know, you got to find people that are going to do it and going to be successful and to make it through those things. And it's easier so, to wait for them to come to Stanford than it is for you to go out to business. Absolutely. Or and I think this will change. Ohio. And actually, let's talk about Minnesota. Yep. So I'm a good friend of mine, Mike Benson. I um, used to run marketing at ABC. He's over at Amazon now. He grew up, you'll know the town I won't, but it's where the Mall of America is today. Bloomington, Minnesota. Yeah. So he grew up just outside of theirs. His grandfather and great grandfather owned a diner, a restaurant there big part of the community. His brothers, the Benson brothers, are really successful local manufacturing business there today. You know what they manufacture? Nope. I won't know the whole story, uh-huh. but it'll be – they grew up with Tony Hawk. Yeah. And they built his jumps because they were in high school together. So they built his skate jumps and parks and they started then a business with him building skate parks. Problem is you can't build them out of plywood because they splinter and they break and people get hurt. You can't build them out of steel because like that breaks bones. Can't build them out of concrete. Same reason. They came up with a composite plastic that was like wood that you could cut and assemble. Became very successful, which is why you see skate parks and you see playgrounds made with that all over America. 
They did not follow that business of making the skate things. They took all the scraps and started making cutting boards for kitchens. Like those composite They're in the plastic. cutting board business. They're in the cutting board business. They just – I saw – Mike just shared a link on Facebook. They just opened a new factory in their town, even bigger. You would think those would come in from China. They don't. Yeah. So I do think – I firmly believe that we don't have – New York's not going to go to Bloomington, Minnesota or Clearfield, Pennsylvania to get all the entrepreneurs. Some of us will come here. But technology is going to take it to the entrepreneurs there. And we'll see a lot of those new businesses happen there. That's a nice optimistic note to leave on. I believe I believe in it. Dave Morgan, I'm glad you came to New York. I'm glad you came to Vox Media for this recording. Thank you for joining us. But the show is not quite over like we told you a little bit earlier, 53 minutes ago. Um, I also talked to Jim Rutenberg, who's a media columnist at the New York Times. Hey, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to have you on briefly to talk about two stories you wrote in the last week. They're related. Let's see if we can figure out the connection. First one is called RT, Sputnik, and Russia's New Theory of War. Second one in your mediator column, Facebook knows more about Russia's election meddling, shouldn't we? Question mark. Jim, how'd you end up on the Russia beat this week? I don't know. Is that some, something how that happened? No, I've actually been fascinated by RT for years. And even before... It kind of really exploded in January of this year with the United States intelligence community fingering them as part of a vast Russian sort of influence network operating here in the United States. I had sort of been talking to them about doing something bigger. And then when the CIA or intelligence report hit, I called them up. Wait, wait, stop one second. Tell people what RT is, because I think a lot of people don't know what it is or have only a vague idea because they're not watching it. Good point. And, and they, a lot of them aren't. RT is was used to be known as Russia Today, and it's basically Russia's answer to Western media in the United States and the UK. They started their own 24-hour cable network to operate in foreign... It's, a, it's their version of Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, or they would say CNN because they insist CNN's no different than a government-run network. Right. But it's designed to be watched in the US, in Western Europe. It's financed by... The, the Russian government. It has almost no viewers in, in the United States, right? Very few viewers. I mean, they have some polling that it's not the way we do Nielsen ratings, but it's Ipsos polling found that they had, I don't know, like 8 million viewers per right. week. But Who knows what that means, you know? Exceptionally generous, right? It's, it's a barely rated cable channel. So why is it important for you? You went to Russia to write about this thing. For a big chunk of the, this year, you spent a lot of time on this. Why, why write about a, a barely watched cable channel? Because the truth is that without social media, I wouldn't care about it. But with social media, Facebook and Twitter and a kind of and that broader network of kind of Russian influence agents on Facebook and Twitter, RT becomes very much part of the mix. And it's the part of the mix of Russian influence that they will talk about that the Russians will say. Right, so it's out there on the surface. It's on the surface. They're upfront about it. Yes, this is. Our, our way to, as Vladimir Putin put it in terms of RT, to quote-unquote break up the Anglo-Saxon information streams. So You've got a quote from his press secretary, who's even bolder. He says, uh, it's war. He said it's an information war. I don't care whether war. you call it hybrid war or whatever. It's, it doesn't matter. It's war. That's his quote. It's war. I mean, this he is our, ins our instrument of violence. And, and he says our, of RT, it's quote-unquote an army from the other side in terms of Anglo-Saxon media. So it's this barely watched cable channel. It's financed by the Russians, and you're, you're both you and the American intelligence community say, well, this is actually sort of in the middle of Russia's 
overt war against the U.S. conducted. It's an information war. And, and, and the stuff that sort of starts on the cable channel ends up on Facebook in various forms. Is that a fair way of putting it? It is, um, though, to be fair to RT, um, they have a mix of programming that, you know, you would look at it and say, okay, there's Larry King has a show on RT. Um, there's Ed Schultz, a former MSNBC anchor, who has a show on RT. He's changed since he was on MSNBC. <laughs> his, his, uh, he no longer rails against Vladimir Putin, but... Right, there's some randomness in the mix, and they used to have Julian Assange had a show there. And as you point out, it's not always pro-Russia, and it's not always pro-Trump. There's a lot of lefty stuff there. It seems like the through line is, let's put out news that sort of undercuts the idea of mainstream America and sort of establishment America. Yes, and, and over the years, it's, it's also found a place where it has found an audience here is in the realms of on the left, maybe with the Occupy movement, but on the right, it, it is at home with Alex Jones sometimes, and he's frank, frequently been on their air. And early on especially, they say they're cutting it out on this, on this level, but they would do 9-11 truthers, you know, give them some airtime. So... It's often about playing off the fringes, and it, it, it finds its place in the sort of outer poles of our political debate. As you said, it was mentioned in the uh, American intelligence findings at the beginning of the year. It's carried on, on traditional cable carriers, right? Comcast, et cetera. I'm not sure if Comcast. But the, the big carriers carry it. Are they getting any blowback for now that people sort of realize what this thing is? They are getting some blowback, but I want to uh, shout out a very good story the Journal did about their carriage. And that was a, within the last couple of months, and what the, the journal found, which was fascinating, was that in some cases they have gotten themselves onto free over-the-air broadcast channels. They've sort of leased space with broadcast channels in various markets, meaning that the Comcast of the world must carry them under the must-carry rules. Right, and then so they've sort of uh, exploited some of the uh, rules that, that govern broadcasting and cable carriage in the U.S. Which and there's a through line to the piece you wrote about Facebook as well. When you, I'm just curious about the reporting of the story. So you spent time in Russia. I was asking you off air if you've got any background there. You don't. Um, when you parachute into a country like this, and specifically Russia, what do you have to do to prepare yourself? It's it's not necessarily a welcoming environment for Western journalists. Certainly not for journalists broadly. What do you what do you do to prepare? Well, first, getting the visa was uh, hard, and we want to follow all their rules. We have a bureau there that I don't want to interfere with them. I don't want to be careless, reckless. So, getting the visa was hair raising. You don't, you don't want, you don't want to create problems with the Times journalists in Russia. Not for my colleagues, you know, because I, if I play around with the visa, it could hurt them with their visas. Um, But the the Russian visa offices in New York made me wait till literally I didn't get. The visa completed till the day before my flight. Um, then there's the issue of a fixer. You know, you need someone on the ground who can help you because uh, I still can't say hello in Russian. I mean, so, like, so uh, you needed someone on the ground. I was going to say Pajausta. I don't know if that's correct. It's a Zdravidya. Uh, I took first semester Russian twice. I wow. But so you don't speak Russian, um, neither do I, we've established. So, so you need someone to guide you through there. And then what do you do to sort of protect yourself, either physically or in terms of protecting your, your iPhone or whatever other equipment you've got? Physically, there was no issue whatsoever. I took a sort of travel phone with me and a travel laptop. Um, but, you know, the truth is, the week I was there, Rex Tillerson was there. Um, his first visit to Moscow as Secretary of State. So... 
if there was any surveillance happening, I'm sure it was taken up by the American delegation. <laughs> so I had had the sense I had a sense of security in that regard. And everyone you talk to in the piece, I mean, it's you've got copious quotes on the record. I mean, they they seem very happy to have you writing about them. Um, it seems like getting access to write about RT and Sputnik, which is sort of their their sub brand. Um, they're excited to have you do it, or at least happy to have you do it. I would say that, um, especially Dmitry Peskov, um, Vladimir Putin's spokesman, was clearly excited to talk about the subject in this sort of meta way, and um, his, or should I say, macro way, and his his office assistant assistant said, you know, no one's really kind of asked him to just wax on about his media theory, <laughs> at least not a Western journalist, and he was really smart about it. I mean. Clearly, they're smart about it. And his argument was, to me, fascinating. The parts that will got a little less pickup was this idea that every the economy has moved on from being commodity-based so much. It's often perception-based. And that changes everybody's interests realign. Information is everything. And so there's an information war. And that information war is, is about a new jockeying for power and position. You know, and he maintains that Russia is only responding to Western sort of media meddling in its backyard forever. So it's just, it's only responding to other threats. But my favorite thing he said was, look at someone like Kim Kardashian and talking about how easy it is to manipulate opinion. All of her Twitter followers, man, if she ever were political, imagine the power she would have with no intelligence service, you know, no military. And so they're just the way they were thinking about it and hearing that was to me just fascinating. Right. So they're, uh, again, out front saying, yep, we're, we're in there. We're trying to manipulate the media uh, for gain, um, in this case, political gain. Um, the same thing as Kim Kardashian and, you know, promoting her butt, but different. <laughs> um, leads us. So that's the weekend story from the magazine. And then on, on Monday in The Times, in your mediator column, you've got this piece going after Facebook specifically for not being as upfront as you think they should be about Russia's involvement. Again, the, the through line there. Your argument is, look, they either can or should know more about what's going on in terms of what happened on Facebook, um, in terms of Russian folks buying ads, spreading disinformation, and they should share that information with us. Do you think that's going to happen? You know, I actually think it is going to have to happen. And there have been reports from, you know, over the weekend that that Bob Mueller, the special counsel, has gotten their data – uh, about this campaign, this alleged Russian campaign, and uh, you know, there's there's mixed reports that this this required a search warrant. But no matter what, we, I've covered politics most of my career, especially po- political advertising. And when there was a shady shady ad, that there were questions about how it was financed and it didn't seem fair, our system was able to look at it, try to figure out who the funding source was, understand what it had said, where it was wrong. I mean, that's just. That's how our system works. So Facebook, and right, and there's there's rules about it. And, may, and by the way, you, this may happen after the fact, and maybe by the time you get around to figuring out who financed that ad, it, it's after the election. But you can usually figure it out. Uh, harder now, I think, with Citizens United, but eventually you can do it. Yeah, and by the way, television stations have to keep records that the, anyone in the public can see, literally anyone, to see within certain windows close to elections who bought what ads. I mean, maybe who bought it is like Citizens for Blue Skies, and you have to figure out who they really are, but. But there's a record of this, and you know, there's talk now on the Capitol Hill about making social media properly account for these this kind of advertising as well. Facebook. It seems like one of the arguments they're making uh, is, look, legally, we can't give you more information than we're giving you already, which is very vague. 
Um, and if Mueller c- compels us a subpoena, we can give him more, but, but we're limited in what we can, we can actually provide. Um, yeah. Do you think they can get changed with the law? Do you think they can just get out ahead of it and say, all right, in this case, we're going to tell you all about it, but that's, it's a one-time only thing? I mean, I'm, not everyone's convinced that their legal argument in this case, as it's often the case with law, is slam dunk, that there's probably more they can share. And it's, it's always there seems with Facebook on these kind of issues that whatever the, the legal constraint also happens to fit nicely with their public relations imperative here, right? Is it really in their interest to show potentially really nasty, divisive ads or Facebook posts that were completely false? It's, you know, not great branding for them. They've been fighting over the, fighting with this, you know, defending the idea that they were a receptacle for fake news for months now. So I don't know. Something right. Remember right after the election, Zuckerberg said, there's nothing, I don't know why you're talking to us. We had nothing to do with it. And eventually over time, all right, there's a little bit, there's a little bit more. Like you said, you cover politics for a long time. You cover media as well. There's this meme bouncing around that says, oh, you know what? It's finally Silicon Valley's time in the barrel. Some combination of Amazon and Twitter and YouTube and Facebook um, is finally drawing scrutiny from the politicians, and they've been sort of unregulated up until now, but now things are going to change. Are you one of those folks who believes that? I, I think so. I mean, get, the one thing is in this political era, like conventional wisdom is continually uh, turned upside down, but it definitely seems like there's definitely a political will, a pretty wide political will, to, to make sure there's more transparency in terms of political activity and then, you know, it goes on up the chain in terms of a lot of Silicon Valley companies and issues about regulation and, and alleged monopoly or duopoly power. It just, the, it, the, the trajectory seems pretty set. Again, like, who knows? Yeah, I'm a little confused by it because it seems like, look, the Republicans are against regulation. And during the Obama era, Washington really didn't touch Silicon Valley at all. Google never got touched. Uh, Facebook, no one even went near it's a little difficult for me to figure out how this is like a, something that someone wants to spend political capital on. But I keep hearing from smart people, including you, it says, no, it's going to happen. So I guess we'll see. There's something kind of interesting going on in the Trump movement, though, especially when it comes to Silicon Valley. There's some hostility. Trump himself is kind of hinted, for instance, as Amazon. You know, does it need more regulation? Right. So there's just it's like it's not a politics and always like line up anymore the way we used to think they did on issues. Um, right. You know? But he complains about everyone, right? And, and he he didn't <laughs> campaign against Silicon Valley. He campaigned against Mexico and China, right? Who well, are, who are he, good, good, fat political targets to go after. He did, but you know, some of his supporters did. They said Google is skewing the uh, election results for Hillary Clinton. Facebook is hiding conservative views. You know, the, the sort of sort of the counter to some of the liberal complaints. So. There is a part of the Trump movement that is very anti-Silicon Valley, very anti-Silicon Valley. I knew this was going to happen. I knew we were going to talk for 15 minutes, and I was going to regret not having you in for a full 45 minutes or an hour. So here's what we'll do. We'll bring you in later this year. You'll come sit down. We'll sit face-to-face, and we'll have a real conversation in person. Sound good? That's awesome. I think my voice will sound much better in studio. You, you sound great right now, and you will, you will sound better in person. So, Jim Rutenberg, thank you for your time. We can find you at the New York Times on Twitter. Are you on Facebook? You yep. Oh, here. yeah, I'm on, I'm on all of the above, at Jim Rutenberg on Twitter and Jim Rutenberg on Facebook. And we have a very savvy audience. They'll be able to figure out how to find you. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Jim. Thanks Talk so to much. You soon. Thanks again to Jim Rutenberg from the New York Times. Thanks again to Dave Morgan from Simul Media. It's fun to have two interviews in one episode, right? Thanks to you guys for listening. 
All we ask is one thing. Please tell someone about this podcast. We do not care how you tell them. Just tell them. Thanks. If you feel extra generous, you can hear my colleagues' podcast. Kara Swisher has Recode Decode. Kara and Lauren Good from The Verge host Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thanks to our sponsors, Mac Weldon, TransferWise, and The Art of Shaving. Thanks to Cadence 13, who brings those sponsors to this show. They're great. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson. Thanks to my editor, Chris Basil, who cuts all this stuff up and makes it sound even better. This is Recode Media. We're back next week. See you then. Hey, Recode Media listeners. I'm Heatha Herzog. I know you love Peter Kafka, and I do too. I used to work with him at Forbes. Now I have my own podcast with Liz Plank. It's called Divided States of Women, and each week we will delve into the biggest issues and questions that divide and unite women across the country. You can find Divided States of Women on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out and tell a friend. Tell many friends. Tell your mom. Tell your brother. Tell tell your, no, explain to your mom what a podcast is, and then tell her. Snapchat your mom about about the podcast. There we go. Hey, this is Peter Kafka. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I have one more thing to tell you. Our media industry listeners already know this, but Recode is owned by Vox Media. So we wanted to include a special shout out to them because we love Vox Media. Vox Media is a fast growing media company known for its standout technology and high fidelity advertising, like the kind of thing you're listening to right now. Its platform is what supports our growth here at Recode, and we are growing. And it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. For us, that's tech news and analysis, but Vox Media has many more awesome brands. You should check them out. There's Vox.com. They go deeper into explaining the stories that define the world today. SB Nation tells awesome sports stories beyond the scoreboard. There's many more, including Eater. It's one of my special favorites. Curbed, Racked, and Polygon, they're all awesome. What unites all these brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and we love you, our audiences. Remember, that's Vox Media who wants you to go deeper. Thank you, Vox Media.